Welcome to the Thriving Farmer Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Kilpatrick. Our mission is to inspire, educate, and celebrate sustainable farming. We believe that you can build a profitable, sustainable farm that gives you true farm freedom. Join us as we talk to farmers, innovators, educators, and entrepreneurs to glean their top takeaways in business and life. Thank you to the Northwest Arkansas Land Trust for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Conservation organizations play an important role in supporting local farms and food efforts nationwide. In the heart of the Ozarks, this land trust is taking land access for farmers one step further where they're offering affordable land leases. You can learn more about the program and the farm location by contacting 479-966-4666. Information is online at www.nwafarmlink.com. Dot org. That is nwafarmlink.org. Hey, Thriving Farmers, Michael Kilpatrick here with another episode of the Thriving Farmer podcast. And today my guest is John Arbuckle of Singing Pastures Farm. Along with a network of farm partners, John and his family raise heritage breed pigs in the grassy fields of coastal Maine, where they are changing the food system from the ground up. John, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks so much, Michael. Really, really happy to be here. Yeah, so give us a little bit of background of your farm. If I understand correctly, you are a ninth generation farmer. Yeah, that's right. Uh, my family has not been very creative in their uh, pursuits of employment. <laughs> uh, we've uh, we've been doing very similar, you know, fundamentally the same thing for almost three hundred years in America. You know, which is producing food and selling it. Okay. And um, along the along all those generations, you know, a lot changes within each generation and a lot stays the same. You know, our desire for the connection to the land, you know, to human community, to produce healthy food and uh, and to provide for our families along the way. You know, all, all of those things kind of stay the same. You know, what changes is, um, you know, the game as we play it, you know, the strategies that market forces and modern realities kind of, um, you know, creep in. And, mm-hmm. uh, and that's the part that changes, you know, so something stays the same and something, something never changes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So give us a little bit of background of your farming journey. Yeah. Um, so I grew up on um, my family's farm in the Midwest. Uh, as a kid, a really beautiful place. It was, it was also very conventional, you know, mm-hmm. um, we raised about a thousand acres of row crops and we raised, um, about a thousand pigs. We were feeder to, you know, Pharaoh to finish, you know, pig okay. operation. And we had, um, about 60, uh, mama cows, you know, that in a, in a beef cow operation. Okay. And then, so you, did you always want to be a farmer or did you leave the farm and come back to the farm? You know, um, that's a great question. Our family had a subscription to National Geographic magazine. And, you know, I started farming pretty early. You know, some of my earliest memories are my father trying to teach me to drive stick shift, you know, so I could unroll barbed wire better for him. Um, I, I got in the farming game really early as a, just as a little kid. And, um, but you know, we had this subscription to national geographic and I just remember sitting on a tractor cultivating corn, you know, for 10 hours a day. And then just thinking about those snow capped mountains and deep caves and jungles and beautiful rivers in Alaska that I'd seen in those magazines. And, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, when I graduated, um, from high school, I went off to become a rafting guide. Okay. And um, I stayed a rafting guide for most of my early adult life. I was a river guide for 12 years. Mm-hmm. And I'm very, very happy to say I got to work in 10 different countries, uh, guiding, you know, wilderness tours and all those, you know, beautiful places that I saw in the magazines, you know. Very and, cool. um, but the commonality was paying attention to nature. Okay. That's something that, you know, wilderness travel and farming has in common. Um, Paying attention, very different lenses that you see the world through, but it has a commonality. And eventually um, I met a girl and decided to get married and have a family. And I thought, well, um, let's go back to, 
the familiarity, you know, the wonderful childhood that I'm so happy that I got to experience. Um, let's let's provide that same experience for a couple more kids. And that's what that's what brought me back into farming. Okay, so that brought you back into farming. And then when you were coming back into farming, was that into the same thing that you grew up as? Or did you know that you wanted to make something different or build no, something? No, I knew that I wanted to make something different. Um, to share, you know, of a slightly personal nature, you know, my father was a chemical applicator for much of his life, you know. And unfortunately, as a result of that, what I believe was a result of that, he was diagnosed with Parkinson's at 47. Wow. Um, pretty, pretty early to be diagnosed with Parkinson's. I would also add that there's 111 independent studies that correlate glyphosate exposure to Parkinson's and about a million other things you don't want. <laughs> uh, it's not good is what we're saying. Yeah, 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 yeah. So anyway, um, seeing that was, you know, a real wake up call to me. I was like, if if that's, you know, if that's what you get from spraying chemicals, I'm not going to spray chemicals. Um, so, you know, our... My first move into pasture-based agriculture uh, happened, you know, back in the Midwest. You know, I took over our family farm. And the first thing that I did was, you know, shut down the, you know, you know, the uh, the factory part, you know, okay. the indoor pig farming. We, we moved all the pigs outdoors, which meant a change in genetics. You know, those white pigs just sunburned too bad. And uh -huh. they are not very hardy, you know, if the wind blows and it's cold night, you know, they, they, they have to be indoors. <laughs> um, so we changed, we got all the pigs out of the barns. We put them all out on pasture. We changed the genetics so they would be hardier. Um, we removed all of the antibiotics. We removed the genetically modified feed ingredients. Um, and uh, yeah. And, and when we did that, we went to a land intensive rather than infrastructure intensive model. And we what we found was that it would be very difficult to sell pigs at the sale barn following those practices. So that precipitated us needing to start our own brand. Uh, and we did. It's the, I don't know if you can see it on my hat, but it's uh, Singing Pastures Farm. And instead of selling pigs at the sale barn, um, we started making snack sticks. They're little smoked sausages and uh, and really delicious salami. And that's what we do with our pigs now. Okay. So the name Singing Pastures, was there a specific reason? There's a, there's a story behind that? Yeah, it's a short one. You know, um, Singing Pastures comes from... You know, it's it's our uh, mandate as farmers to care for the land, make it better for not just us, but future generations and wildlife, whoever lives downstream of us. That's that's what farmers need to do. We need to make the world a better place through our chosen vocation. Um, we picked Singing Pastures because we've been lucky that the various locations we've lived and farmed uh, were relatively intact ecosystems, you know? So the pastures and prairies are just always singing, you know? There's bullfrogs and coyotes and great horned owls and, you know, just all kinds of birds. Um, it's a real orchestra of life. And that's why we call our farm Singing Pastures. Gotcha. So then I'm assuming that, you know, the transition from um, pork to the snack sticks was a little bit of a discovery or trying to figure that out. Talk through a little bit about kind of what that entailed. And I think your wife actually entails like your ingredient search in detail on your blog. Yeah. So how did we transition from uh, pork to, to um, a CPG product, you know, consumer packaged good? Mm -hmm. um how did we do that well i think that the local food movement is a wonderful movement but it's also my opinion that if you're a farmer your ability to succeed in your financial goals based on a local model is going to be largely dependent on your zip code 
Um, if you live outside of Seattle, um, you probably have a fighting chance of making a go at it you know, in, the, in the local food movement. If you live in rural uh, Mississippi or like me, extremely rural parts of the Midwest, uh, that's where I grew up. Your neighbors are probably going to be among the thriftiest people on earth, and they will probably not uh, value the high dollar product that you're peddling <laughs> enough yes. to, you know, put your kids through college, you know, and help you pay your mortgage. You know, so that's that's basically what what prompted us. You know, we were having a great time going to the farmer's market. Uh, but in our area, it was more of a social experience and less of a way of creating a retirement fund. Mm -hmm. And when my wife and I have that very frank, you know, conversation about uh, financial goals, you know, we realized that our financial goals were they, they weren't complicated. They were to pay the mortgage on the farm, mm -hmm. put our kids through college should they choose to go and to be able to retire at, um, you know, normal age. And uh, and then, you know, when we started to connect the dots from those are our goals in the future. And here's what we're doing right now. It, it, it we couldn't get the, the dots to connect, you know. So that's what prompted um, the evolution, you know, of our brand and our farm. And we moved from selling green beans and sweet corn and chicken eggs and grass fed beef and bacon and all that good stuff. Thanksgiving turkeys selling all that stuff at a farmer's market uh, to uh, contracting a website, you know, firm to help us build a website. And, uh, and then I just started cold calling every wholesaler, you know, that I could, I could find. It was part of my daily chores, actually. You know, I'd get done taking care of my animals. I'd come in the house and I'd start cold calling people. And then, you know, I had a notebook full of all that. You have to record all that information. Yeah. And so you didn't take too long and, and we were in the snack stick business and uh, and we were wholesaling to other retailers and we were finding that an, an easier path to meeting our goals. Yeah, because they're responsible for selling it in their store or on their website and you are focused on mostly just producing. It helped me stay in, in my lane, you know, mm -hmm. if we imagine that, um, you know, everybody's got a bandwidth. You know, and, and my bandwidth, I really enjoy optimizing the systems that lead to cost effective production, you know, mm -hmm. of the animals, followed by it's a very similar logic train that goes from creating a successful animal production system to a product production system. You know, the, the brain space, the, the piece of my brain that's firing for one is probably the same piece of my brain that's firing for the other. So if you can do one of those, you can probably do the other one also. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about, you're now located in Maine and you said you're about, a, I think about 200 acres of land. Share a little bit more yep. about kind of what was your move to Maine and kind of how you've set up the farm now to be, as you said, a product centric system. Yeah. So my wife is from up here. And uh, it was just one of our things on our bucket list, you know, to go back and live in the place where she grew up. And um, a farm came up, you know, um, we purchased um, a large conventional dairy farm. Um, and a lot of the infrastructure that goes into, you know, the, the barns and, you know, the fencing and the access roads and the water systems, a lot of the same thing that goes into a large dairy also goes into a pastured pork operation. Um, so that's how we got to Maine. How did we continue our evolution into a product-centered company? Um, little by little, I suppose I would say. We still continue to farm. I still, you know, every day I get up and I spend about 90 minutes um, optimizing our farming systems every day. And... Mm. I, uh, and that's, that's every morning. That's for the most part, that's, that's exercise. That's work that I do with my hands. Um, and it's nice. It's nice to do. I really try to break that up into, um, what I call maintenance and what I call advancement. Advancement is making 
the work easier for the future, creating a system that will be easier for next year, for 2024. Maintenance is just cleaning out the barns. <laughs> you know what I mean? Correct. Maintenance is uh, the things that you have to do to keep the boat going in the right direction. Uh, but advancement is what you do to make it go along a little faster. Wouldn't that be similar to, it's, it's, to working on the business? Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, wouldn't that be uh, similar to working on the business working versus working in the business? Yeah, absolutely. And in the business is maintenance. On the yes. business is advancement. Mm -hmm. And that's really what big companies have in this, as an advantage over us. Correct. You know, they are able to work on the business. And for all of us farmers who um, want to succeed in all of our goals, um, we just have to get it in our heads, you know, work on the business. It's, I heard another farmer tell me it's almost like relaxation to do the $15 an hour jobs, you know, pitchfork out, pitchfork out the corners of your barn or build the electric fence for your next run. It's almost like therapy, you know, it's relaxing, yes. it's invigorating. But if you can hire a high school kid, to do something while you go do something that that person cannot do, then it's your responsibility to do that. So long as the money is there to pay for it, you know, but that's really the thing about delegation. If we are going to scale and succeed and grow our businesses, we have to, we have to be the leader. We have to act like the leader. We have to do the jobs that the leader does. Absolutely. Yeah, it's well. Today was a great example on the farm, and we've been we have we've been mums in every fall for the farm store, and, and we've mm -hmm. been watering them by hand. And it's I'm not happy with that. So today was about setting up an automated watering system, even though it took yeah. you know a couple of my hours. Now I no longer have to have yeah. a team out there doing that. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So what yeah. big what big system changes are you putting in place that allow you to, again, outsource or be doing less of those maintenance? Yeah. So what I do, we are pretty dependent on employees. Mm -hmm. And while I'm still down there for 90 minutes every morning, there's going to be um, a fair number of employees. I, I think we have nine or 10 employees right now. Um, there's a couple of part-timers on the farm, you know, that are helping. We, we used to have a farm manager, but he's out right now. We, we had one full-time farm manager and then a couple of, you know, young people in high school. Um, and they would run the fencing and build things and paint things. And, you know, and then the farm manager would do the specialized work, you know? Correct. Um, yeah. So, and then what I do is I make sure that I've designed the right farming system. And the way that I know that I have is that it makes money. <laughs> Correct. Um, and so there's, there's several boxes, you know, it's not exclusively about the money, but you know, if you're not making money, your farming venture will be a short lived venture. <laughs> Correct. Um, so um, well, you'll just I'm be making chronically sure poor. that it's making Yes, I know. And, and that's no fun. No. Uh, it's less fun than the alternative, you know, and there's no reason to say that you can't make money and sequester carbon and protect wildlife and create nutrient dense food and have happy animals. There's there's really a way that all of those things flow together and they're not competing with each other. They're not battling each other, you know, for priority. Correct. So you've chosen, your business model has chosen to go very deep with one very specific thing. I mean, you have the three different flavors of snack sticks, and now you're actually have a new product, the artisan salami. Um, and obviously other people have yeah. gone super wide. Um, and it, but yours seems to be definitely working for you. Yeah, it, it is. And, you know, um, I really operate on that permaculture principle that limitations create abundance mm -hmm. and you really have to get each product to a critical mass. Otherwise, the relationship of employees to revenue gets out of balance very quickly. 
You know, like each operation will have its own fingerprint and is going to under and is going to have to understand how many full time equivalents does it take to create each two hundred thousand dollars, let's say, of revenue. Right. Does that does that make sense? You, you have a ratio yes. of <laughs> revenue to full time equivalents, you know, to full time employees. Um, and I think understanding that is really important. And if you can quantify that, oftentimes I'm not able to figure all that stuff out on my own. I'm going to need to get one of my buddies who, you know, is really, really sharp, you know, and has experience in this sort of thing. And I and I just his name is Burtis. I'm like, hey, Burtis, man, let's let's figure out, you know, how my ratios are looking right now. And that's that's a really big thing once you get to once you get to the sweet spot you know the critical mass of revenue and you can start to split jobs you know then you, you really have um a great way to convey your message make money from your message and to legitimately and genuinely be healing the earth with your farming practices, you know, all those things can happen together. Mm. Now you'd say you also have a network of partner farms is farm partners. Is that like additional farms that raise pork for you or? Yes, yes, that is correct. So when, when I was a one person operation, you know, eight or 10 years ago, I was raising, I was doing everything. You know, I was booking my yes. slaughter dates and, you know, providing spec sheets to butcher shops and coming home and trying to sell the product. And, you know, um, and, you know, it was a slow road, you know, slow road to success. And my wife, um, she's a, if I may say so myself, she's a, she's a real smart cookie. Uh, she came on board full time as um, as the CEO. So she okay. is the boss of the operation and for a long time was the chief marketing person. And when she came on board, um, we got a lot of lift out of, out of that. That was a big, big, big help. And our sales grew to the point where um, we couldn't grow all the pigs. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, we couldn't grow as many pigs as we could sell. Um and uh, so then I, I went around to all my all my Amish neighbors. You know, I was living in the Midwest. There was a lot of really wonderful Amish people living close to me. And I I just drove around and I got a bunch of guys to raise pigs for me. And and it kind of grew from there. OK, gotcha. So are a lot of your producers then in in the Midwest area then. Yeah, uh, but not not all of them. We have a we have a producer group in the Midwest, and we have a producer group in the Northeast where we are. Gotcha. Okay. And then does all your pork go to a specific one location for processing, or do you again have that diversified where you have a producer in the Midwest for that? No. So the pigs, there's. A variety of strategies at play when it comes to the movement of that pork. So, okay. Um, let's say we so we sell a lot to local whole animal butcher shops, and okay. uh, I think the biggest compliment that a butcher shop can give a farmer is I'm I'm buying I'm stocking up on your pork because I'm putting it in my own family's freezer this winter. <laughs> um, yes. And we we've, we've received that several times this year. So, um uh, those pigs that go to local whole animal butcher shops do get um harvested locally and then we provide split uh carcasses that are delivered by the harvesting, you know, the butcher shop. Gotcha. Um, so that's one way that we harvest animals. Uh, another way is we load them up on semi trucks and send them out of state. And okay. uh, when we do that, we attempt to retain ownership of the raw materials that we require for our branded product line, the smoked sausages and the salami. Uh -huh. we, we'll keep some of the trim, you know, whatever was going to be sausage. You know, we'll hang on to we'll keep that. And then the higher value meats, the middle meats, you know, the baby back ribs, the pork chops, tenderloins, bacon, some of the, you know, really beautiful shoulder roast kind of material. 
A lot of that stuff is going to go to meal delivery services, like meat box delivery services or blue gotcha. apron kind of places. Okay. All right. And then, so with all of this, uh, what do you spend your days doing? Yeah. How does my day look? So um, I think that I'll start out saying this. This is a long answer. The way that I answer this question is the word regenerative has to be um, a word that we apply to our whole lives. Mm -hmm. You know, we're, we're not, it's not exclusively a phrase that uh, applies only to how we build soil. You know, mm -hmm. it's a fundamental outlook. So, um, you know, I think that in the process of regenerative agriculture, I define that as giving more than we take. You know, um, we're going to have to apply that to ourselves, our human communities, the people that we partner with. Um, so anyway, that's the foundation for that answer. So I get up and um, I do this really funny kind of Wim Hof breathing exercise. <laughs> Look it up sometime okay. if you want to know what it is. It's, 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 an, it's a fun way to start out the day. Um, then I go down to the farm, work about 90 minutes trying to work on the farm rather than in the farm. I'll try to help keep on optimizing systems, make sure all the employees are doing what I think they're doing, making sure that I've communicated accurately on my expectations and, and short-term and long-term goals. Okay. I usually have a big dry erase board with a person's name and the tasks that they can be doing that week. And then I leave it up to the employees to pick the task. I mean, sometimes there's high priority stuff, but other times it's going to depend on the weather or if someone else is using a particular piece of equipment or not. Um, so anyway, there's, you know, a long list of stuff that can be done with little stars next to it. If it's a priority, I make sure that's going. Then I come home, get all cleaned up and um, I sit down at my desk and I create something called goals at a glance. Okay. Um, there's there's a software program called Attack Your Day. Okay. Um, and well, I don't really visualize myself attacking my day. <laughs> you know, I um, I did find the um, the structure of that document very helpful. So, you know, if there, let's say that there's five of us on the core team, we're going to take uh, shared information. And everyone will see what everyone else is doing. So on Mondays, we're going to share our goals at a glance. You know, what are we going to spend our time working on that week? And who's doing what? Uh, I think it's really important for a farm or a developing small business to work as a cohesive unit, you know, you know what they say about the dream team, that basketball team that was so popular in the Olympics, you know, the American team back yep. in the late 90s or something. Um, they said that they didn't play like a team. They said they played like a whole bunch of superstars. That's what I'm told. I don't know if that's true or not. I'm not a basketball guy, but I did enjoy the metaphor very much. And one of my jobs, I guess, as the chief impact officer, you know, I'm going to be making sure that our company culture is as loving, as life-giving, and as effective as my potential as an individual is to create. Okay. Um, so goals at a glance, the whole team knows what everybody is doing is very important. And then we go over on uh, the next day, we go over a punch list. The punch list is a calendar outlining our short, medium, and long-term timeline goals and making sure that um, we are executing on that. You know, we have to know when certain events need to be done and we need to be prepared for those events. And it's always a lot more fun to see the train coming before you try to jump on it, you know? Correct. So I don't know. To that end, time scarcity can take the fun out of anything. So if we can see what our, we call them key performance indicators, KPIs. If we can see what our KPIs, the metrics we use to measure success, we can see those coming and we have time to prepare. We almost always do a better job 
effectively addressing those goals. Did gotcha. that answer your question? <laughs> yes. No, that's that's great. I mean, there's there's some key areas that we use, some areas I think that would be great for us to start implementing. We're really, again, we have a really young, this farm is pretty young, only two and a half years old. So we're still trying to build those yeah. key people in the team and still figure out where the key enterprises are. Because I think what you said there was really key was you've got to have an enterprise big enough that it actually makes sense to operate. And I think one of the problems with our farm yeah. is we've, we've been trying a lot of different things to kind of see what sticks. And along that way, obviously, we're burning yeah. through training and capital and things like that. So um, we're obviously moving the right direction because we keep growing, but we're also seeing what we're good at, what we're not. And some things are going to get dropped. It's really worth being more ruthless than you think you should be on cutting farm ventures that you're suspicious of their profitability. You know, um, I think that I've done a lot of things just because I thought they were neat. Mm. And that's the definition of a hobby. That's the definition of a hobby, not a job. You know, so <laughs> okay, yep. you've got to, to succeed in farming. You have to really enjoy the tasks that accomplish your goals. Taking care of the land and providing for your family really have to be at the top. So yeah. anyway, X all the stuff, just kick it out the door. If it's not making money, it's an anchor around your neck. So cut the anchor off. Absolutely. I'm talking to Susan from the Northwest Arkansas Land Trust, and we are talking today about tips for working with the land trust and why you might want to preserve your land. Susan, talk to us about why this is important with farmers. Well, gosh, you know, we are seeing so much of the available farmland across the country, you know, being used for development purpose as economies are growing. It's, a, you know, natural for developers to want to tap into that. But we just want to um, help, you know, farmers in our community and across the United States. There's a lot of resources for farm families to consider what um, conservation could look like and permanent protection of that farmland. So one of the th first things I would suggest is to look, you know, locally, there likely are land trusts in your community that would know about the specific geographies and the conservation values and, and just be really great community partners. If there's not an organization locally, then I would turn to the American Farmland Trust, which purposefully is there at a national level to try to help fill the gap where a local land trust may not be able to help a farm family. The other thing I would suggest is it's really never too soon to start planning for conservation or for, you know, the legacy that you're building with a farmland property. So, you know, having those conversations with family or business partners and really developing um, a succession plan or the retirement plan, oftentimes Farm Bureau or your local extension offices will have great content and experts on these types of subjects and can help farmers navigate. The third piece of advice is when you do start to work with that land trust, I would really encourage you to spend time with the conservation easement. They are highly customizable documents, even though they are lengthy, and they are built for you to really think about the attributes of your farm and what you want to preserve and you know what will remain in commercial production, et cetera. And just you know be thinking about down the road, what would it look like if, you know, family members may build a home on a portion of it or, um, you know, perhaps you're leasing some land to another farmer. All of those things are options. And just to go into it open minded, but give yourself some time. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Susan. And if you are interested in finding more about the Northwest Arkansas Land Trust and the affordable, stable leases that they are offering, you can go to www.nwafarmlink.org or contact 479-966-4666. So what advice would you give to new farmers that are just getting started? I would say to go slow with it the first year, which probably necessitates uh, an off-farm job, you know? So if somebody can approach farming from a centered place, if they're attempting to go into farming, um, I would start by taking a year of building a business plan and financial modeling uh, accounting architecture, 
a marketing plan, um, understanding your bill of materials and cost of goods sold. And I would just, you know, small business administration, um, a lot of places have small business support, you know, universities and colleges, you know, do. And, and um, if, uh, if you take a year and create a really waterproof business model, um, you'll be glad you did. And if you don't do that, you I give you three years <laughs> before you're back okay. in another job. Gotcha. So don't quit the day job. What would you, and so what yeah. would, I think another thing you seem to have gone deep. Would you recommend someone go super deep with what they're working on? Let's say being a really good salad mix grower and not grow the rest. Or would you say it really depends on what your end up your model ends up and there's no one right way? It's the latter. I don't believe there is one right way. Um, I might say that a lot of it, I mean, if you start out the venture by creating a mission statement and then a list of six bullet points under your mission statement that you would like to achieve in the pursuit of that mission statement, you know, so for example, when we were uh, farmers market farmers in a small town, Mm -hmm. Um, it was our belief that to go broad was extremely effective because we were living in a town of about 12,000. We were outside of a town of about 12,000 people. And let's say our market share was going to be less than 1% of that population. Correct. So uh, if we were going to be selling to the same 300, you know, we call them the usual suspects. We were going to sell to the same 300 people uh, year round. Uh, we needed to do everything. You know, we uh, we did you picks and and made jam. We baked bread. We grew sweet corn. We sold chicken eggs, Thanksgiving turkeys, you know, bacon, uh, pumpkins, you know, just sauerkraut, yogurt. We were just doing everything. And that was because our population base was very small. And that Absolutely. was matching the goal of our mission statement. When we stepped out of that, that was what I call the broad approach. Um, then I, I decided we were going to do the exact opposite. We were going to say, now our reach is the entire nation that I whoever can access my website, I will sell to. And I'm going to create shelf-stable products that I can ship you know, easily. And, um, and in that, I'm going to optimize the creation of systems that generate the highest margin that I'm able to, you know, with still balancing price and value and all that to the customer with my Correct. desire to provide for my family. So that's the deep approach, you know? So what I guess where I'm going with that is, if the equipment that you use as a microgreens producer, um, if you get, if you spread your available capital over six different ventures, does that have a measurable effect on your per unit efficiency? You know, if, if, uh, if you just buy the equipment that you need for mixed greens and you have really good equipment and you can do, you know, $600,000 worth of revenue a year with three full-time employees, you know, that would be really worth looking at that model. You follow what I'm saying? Absolutely. And you have to do that business, that $600,000, you'd have to be in a market that would be able to support that. And that's not going to be the middle Absolutely. of Utah, probably. Yeah, that's right. So, yeah, yeah. no, I, I get that. I, it really comes back to, again, what you said of where your zip code is. And I think that is such an important thing that farmers need to understand. Yeah. And don't beat your head against the wall for too long. You know, you'll burn through your financial capital, your emotional capital. You know, at, at a certain point, uh, determination is um, not as good as teamwork. You know, I mean, determination is valuable, you know, uh, but, you know, don't let your determination to adhere to a model that's not working uh, harm you. 
-hmm. you know you can you you can, it's okay to cast the net that's what we call it when we're looking at farm ventures but we're not casting the net willy-nilly you know we're casting the net based on spreadsheets you know so when when we when we send new farmers out into the world uh we're sending people out on a sailboat on the ocean and they're not going anywhere without a map and compass you know, so the map and the compass are the spreadsheets and the time that you spend before the growing season, you know, in the still calm coldness of winter, you know, when production is much slower for most farmers, um, you need to be the, the farmers that I'm encouraging out there are going to make a discipline out of talking to a small business counselor from whatever setting you wish to pull them from for one hour every week and for that whole winter i mean let's mm. get 30 you know accountable sessions in with a small business mentor and let's decide what your top five best models are or maybe mm -hmm. just you know your top one or two and then you cast the net on those because it's not like casting the net is a do no harm you know, like, let's say you've got four years to really succeed. You know, you really want to make sure that you at least started, you know, at the starting line instead of 100 feet behind it. Absolutely. Yeah. Very good. Uh, two final questions here. You actually do most of your distribution through Thrive Market. Uh, tell us a little bit about that relationship, how that's worked and kind of what the steps are to make that happen. Yeah, it's um I got into Thrive Market um when they first started. Actually before they before they were even an online presence. Um they and I basically knew a guy who knew the owner and he got me a phone call which is virtually an impossibility today. Yeah. Um and that was a big that was a big shot in the arm for us, you know. We we continue to work with Thrive but we also work with Misfits Market, Imperfect Foods, uh, Hive, H-I-V-E, um, mm -hmm. North Atlantic Naturals, Crown of Maine. Um, you do Marble or Mabel? Mabel. Me, Mabel. We do a lot of business on Mabel. Mm -hmm. uh, we, I think we might be on two dozen platforms. And um, and that's, that's uh, keeping the lights on. Absolutely. And then what makes your sticks different than others? They're the best. <laughs> um, there's a lot of there's a lot of sticks out there that taste like you're eating, you know, chalk or, uh -huh. you know, a construction adhesive or something. Um, our sticks are the best sticks. And part of that, that's a twofold thing. You know, one of those things is the raw material that we're bringing in is genuinely from the happiest, healthiest, most nutrient dense, most ecosystem healing pigs on the planet. You know, they are, we do nutrient density testing every other year. We, you know, have worked with the Savory Institute to help quantify the effects of our, of our ecosystem healing, you know, through our grazing efforts. We're, we're really getting the best raw materials, you know. So in a meat stick, the most important ingredient is the meat. You know, so we like to say that that 98% of the stick that is meat comes from the best raw materials you can you can access. So that's the first half. The second half is the processing. Um, we're super excited about the process we use. It's a 16 or 17 hour cold smoking process, at least for part of it. Then there's a heat, there's a fully cooked element at the end. Mm -hmm. Um we use natural fermentation, uh, which is really, really valuable. You know, it's uh, it, there are two ways to make a snack stick. You either naturally ferment it, ferment it with lactic acid starter culture. Okay. Or you do something that we don't do. You use something called encapsulated citric acid. And the encapsulated citric acid is uh, hydrogenated oils. It's trans fats. You know, Just so crazy. every time you see encapsulated citric acid, it's code for you are eating trans fats. Uh, and we didn't like that. We start actually, we started out doing that. And then when we realized what we were doing, we stopped <laughs> and yeah. we changed to a facility that would do it, you know, in a way that we thought was more life-giving and more delicious. So that's, um, those are some of our assets. You know, we're a, 
we are a flavor first farm. You know, we're not making a commodity. We're making a delicacy. We're making a gourmet product. And when people taste it, then that really opens the jar to them, for them to be receptive to learn more about our regenerative agriculture approaches. You know, we we don't lead with regenerative. We lead with value and taste. And then if they want to nerd out with me, <laughs> as I affectionately call it, yeah, you know, on uh, you know the blog post that we write called "Listening to the Land," like then we can go deeper. And this is the mechanics of how do we heal ecosystems, create nutrient dense food keep our animals happy and healthy and having the spa experience, you know, that we all wish we got every day. Uh Um, And then they can, they can go deeper with me in that, but we have to be flavor and value first. I think you absolutely nailed it because so much, we want to talk about this regenerative aspect, but I think on some aspects in our 15 second info commercial slash soundbite culture, to explain true regeneration takes so long that people go right by it. And so if you can hit it, oh, yeah. well, value it's pretty flavor, easy to talk just... over people's heads, you know? And yeah. And uh, it's, it's mostly because, you know, my interest in regenerative agriculture um, exceeds all my customers for the most part. You know what I mean? Like I, I they're yes. not going to trade shows. <laughs> I mean, the same way that we are. You know what I mean? Like they want to provide something delicious and nutritious and convenient at a good value to put in their kids' lunches or do a, their own lunches or they want to take it on a mountain bike trip. But most of them, and I have to respect their time, you know, they are busy professionals who don't necessarily have, you know, four hours a week dedicated to understanding the carbon cycle. You know, so if I hit them over the head with that, too much, you know, they'll say, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not interested in that experience, you know? So, mm-hmm. you know, just a, a little, a little bit of the regenerative message goes a long way. And then when they start to chase the message themselves, you know, that's when you have an opportunity to, um, to go a lot deeper into the mechanics of the process, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. which is super fascinating. And, you know, I have to imagine some people think that quilting is fascinating or that astronomy is fascinating. And those those aren't my uh, my topics of fascination. You know, my fascination is how do I take livestock and heal the earth with livestock in order to create a nutrient dense, delicious product? You know, that's that's my fascination. Absolutely. Absolutely. Maybe it's theirs. Maybe it's not, you know, but yeah. everybody likes to eat good food. So <laughs> true. John, what would you say is your favorite tool on the farm? The whole entire earth, you know, uh, the entire earth is um, my favorite piece of the farm. I don't care about barns. I don't even like barns. The only thing I like less than barns is tractors. Um, And that that goes a long way because I I detest tractors. (laughs) I still own one, but I don't like it. so I think that my favorite piece of equipment, if we want to call it that, is the relationship and way of being with the earth, where we realize that it is not direct action leading the charge, it's indirect action. And what I mean by that is in order to heal an ecosystem, in order to restore and regenerate a degraded ecosystem, we have to realize that I'm not out there planting the trees and grabbing carbon out of the sky and stuffing it into the ground. I'm nurturing a system that will do that on its own. That's what I mean by indirect effort. You know, direct effort is planting a tree. Indirect effort is creating a system over 200 acres where trees can grow from acorns that fall off of their parent trees. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. John, yeah. thank you so, so that, much. That's my favorite piece of equipment is, is um, and I don't really think of it as equipment. I think of it as I am the earth's employee. I am working for my farm and that every species on my farm is, it's almost like a cell or an organ 
of a huge, enormous macro entity. You know, it's almost like the farm is one living thing unto itself and all the trees and grass and animals, both domestic and wild, are like cells moving about, you know, or oxygen in the bloodstream or the digestive system or the mineral cycle. You know, I mean, all of those things that are happening on the earth is you just have to imagine it as one living thing and then not try to force it in any direction, but just to understand that its wisdom exceeds our human capability by an order of magnitude. We don't have to understand, we don't have to have 100 PhDs in chemistry and soil science and animal physiology. It, the good news is the earth knows that already. And if we stop harming it, and we start just following a few you know, basic principles, the earth is gonna, the, the needle is gonna move in the right direction. So anyway, that's my long answer to that question. No, that's great. Thanks so much, John. Thanks for coming on. And yeah. folks can find more about you at singingpastures.com. Yep, that's right. Check us out. And um, also our Instagram is um, at singingpastures.com. Mm -hmm. And you guys have a great blog. So if, I mean, there's a lot of great articles there. I think mostly written by your wife. Uh, yeah, we, we go back and forth. She writes a lot of them. I write one every once in a while. Okay, very cool. But yeah, some great information there. Some deep dives into regenerative, talking about your story, your history and all that. So good stuff there. But yeah, yeah. thanks again. So I guess, uh, yeah, I, no, I'm sorry to interrupt. I was just going to say to everybody out there, uh, if you have local regenerative farmers that you can meet with, go for it, you know, and if you can't, if those people aren't in your area, don't be afraid to order stuff online. There's a lot of regenerative folks selling stuff online these days. And I really think that that's going to be uh, a bigger thing as time goes on. Absolutely. And of course, your product is available online. Um, and if you have a farm store, it's a great product to stock in your our, our, like we have it in your our farm store now. Um, I will say that pineapple is my favorite flavor, which is yeah. interesting because I'm not a pineapple person. <laughs> yeah. So I'm, yeah, I, I do not like pineapple. It's pine pizza. also. <laughs> so, but yeah, I like it in the snacks. Yeah. Day, so. yeah. I'm the same way. I really, uh, the pineapple is my favorite also. Unless yeah. the jalapeno, we make that one with organic jalapeno. And uh, if you have that one for lunch with like a nice block of cheese and an apple, mm. that's a pretty good combination too. Yeah. Good. Good. Well, John, thank you so much for coming on. Appreciate your time. And uh, we uh, can't wait to see what you guys start doing next. Yeah. Thanks so much, Michael. And, and good luck to you and good luck to all the other farmers out there. I just want to give you all a big hug and encourage you, you know, upward and onward to the light. Absolutely. So there you have it. Another episode in the books. So I'd love if you would hop on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. Those mean everything to us. We love to hear what you're thinking. If you have a podcast guest that you can recommend, please pop on over to the Thriving Farmer Podcast website and leave us a review. That's thrivingfarmerpodcast.com.